Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested on this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, joingelt.com. Com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super exciting. You know, we have a really amazing guest today. We're going to find his journey quite inspiring. Uh, and again, building, scaling, financing, all of that good stuff that we like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Christopher Golick. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So born in Detroit, Michigan. So tell us uh, a little about your uh, story growing up. How was uh, how, how how was life growing up there? Uh, Mich- Michigan's a beautiful state. Uh, I grew up outside of Detroit and went to college there, and it was a great time. I still bring my uh, kids back to the state of Michigan every summer. We go up to a lake house there. And also, you study chemical engineering, out of all things. You know what? What got you into that? It doesn't make for an exciting career when you're a chemical engineer in Detroit because you're either <laughs> you're going to work on a paint line or uh, a hazardous waste facility or something like that. So I was able to to break out and I moved and uh, to the East Coast and joined Dupont right out of school. And uh, and right out of school, I mean, as you were saying, you joined uh, Dupont, then you did GE. So how was how was life in corporate America? Because uh, you know it took you you know just a little bit to. Uh, to really feel prepared, and then you just went at it. So, what what did you need it to learn in order to really, you know, take that leap of faith? Good, good question. I worked for within Dupont. I worked for a a small business, so it was kind of like working for a smaller company in a in a big entity. And I went from product engineering into sales. I ended up uh, selling plastics, and GE uh, hired me and moved me up to uh, the Boston area. And I did the MBA part-time and continued to do sales. And then uh, GE transferred me out to the West Coast to manage all the plastic sales that go to basically Hewlett-Packard and Apple Computer, which was, you know, it's a $100 million business of plastic <laughs> into all those computers. And this was back in early 90s. And right around 1995, when the internet was just taking off, myself and two other people from uh, GE started a supply chain software company. It was really one of the first web-based B2B supply chain software businesses out there. And that was supply base. And you guys pushed that for about uh, six years pri- prior to the acquisition. So so what, what were you guys doing there? What was the uh, the business model? How were you guys making money? 
We sold it as as a license. Um, we sold to large manufacturers, and basically the business was all about uh, helping larger corporations when they're designing new products find and collaborate with suppliers all around the world. And uh, we did a lot of that type of work at GE. So we were just kind of taking what we did day to day and, and brought it online. Uh, none of us <laughs> knew how to build software. Though. So it was a slow start. And then we finally got some momentum and were able to raise some some venture capital in 1998. How was how was it like? How was it like raising money in 1998 versus, you know, what you see now in the venture landscape? Well, it's interesting. It's a good question. If you were doing kind of a business to consumer entity, you know, that was a lot easier to raise money, but to do things like B2B, people didn't even know what it was. They, you know, it just wasn't very sexy to investors. So it was hard. And we finally found a venture firm where uh, one of the senior partners came out of a big manufacturing company called Flextronics. So he knew exactly the problem we were solving and they made the lead investment. And so we were kind of off to the races and we were able to build our own engineering team. And, and you know, we scaled to about 70, 70 to 80 people. And then tell us about the acquisition, because, I mean, the, the acquisition ended up being 400 million. Uh, and it sounds like uh, it was quite a journey because, you know, you guys were going through the process. The board didn't want to uh, go forward with the, I mean, with the acquisition. But, uh, but I mean, the market, you know, literally peaked, you know, also. So quite a crazy time. So tell us about, you know, this whole thing. Yeah, well, we, we uh, really benefited by hiring a, you know, an outside CEO to come in uh, to the company. And right around... I think December of 1999, he, you know, he had the foresight to say like, you know, times are really, really good right now. And our solution makes more sense to be part of a bigger supply chain software. So he really instrumented and orchestrated. It was, a, you know, it's essentially a bidding war <laughs> for our small company between uh, four different businesses. And the way it unfolded, we, we were actually sold. The transaction was announced the day the market peaked on March 13, 2000. So obviously very, very lucky timing. Um, but at the time, you know, there was a lot of other businesses going public um, with no revenue for billions of dollars. So a lot of the investors around the table were like, you know, you guys might be leaving a lot of money on the table. Um, the reality is <laughs> we would have left everything on the table had we tried to stick it out because you know, a lot of businesses like ours just couldn't make it through, you know, the downturn in 2000, 2001. So what did that teach you about timing? And how have you, you know, perhaps uh, polished that, you know, as, as time went by, you know, for other stuff? You know, it's a good question. Yeah, it, the lesson was really about greed. <laughs> and, and, you know, pigs get slaughtered, as, as the saying goes. And, you know, it happened to a lot of businesses. There's, a, you know, a lot of companies that made a lot of money um, during those times, of course, but there's probably three times as many that totally lost everything. And I, I know those stories are, you know, littered throughout the valley. So, you know, as I built, you know, subsequent companies, um, you know, you just take a lot of those lessons and, and what you did learn and, and, and also recognize that a lot of that truly was a bubble um, and it, timing was lucky. So. I think it's important not to be kind of arrogant, like you know exactly what you're doing. You're because you're always learning and evolving. And you know, and today, 
you know, the threshold for going public and and hitting these valuations, you know, the bar is just so much higher than it used to be. And I guess, hey, obviously, first company, first exit, what visibility did that give you? Because, I mean, obviously, you, you guys pushed that for over six years. So I'm sure that that gave you, like, more visibility into, like, wow, this is how it's done, the full cycle. So did, did it become, like, more of a clearer picture and, and easier or more at peace with the process of, of being an entrepreneur and building and scaling? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, <laughs> I often say you learn what not to do or where not to spend your time. I mean, I think that's half the battle. Um, and certainly it, it gave us, you know, relationships with, you know, the venture community, understanding how to raise money, um, you know, how to divide up equity properly. Because we spent a lot of times on things that probably didn't matter. And, you know, through the journey, you know, at demand base over 15 years, same thing. You, you continue to learn and learn and learn. And it's really important to incorporate those learnings into the, the next next venture. Now, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So uh, what happened next? Well, that is a true statement. <laughs> so I, uh, after we sold the business, I stayed on board with the company that acquired us for a couple of years. Um, and then I started doing some consulting with businesses just to, you know, stay active. And I was consulting really around marketing. And um, I just didn't feel like I was building anything. I was helping other companies, but I wasn't really part of anything. And one of the things that really hit me over the head is, you know, a lot of these uh, B2B companies or marketers, they're stuck with all these B2C technologies. And I just felt like at the time, marketers, uh, they spend a lot of money. They don't have a really good way to manage their vendors and suppliers and channels. And so the original vision of Demandbase was kind of like a supply chain solution for marketers. However, that was it was just too early. Um, so that was about 2005. And I could just tell that at that time, you know, the, the venture community wasn't going to bite on something like that. They just didn't understand it that well. And so the the thing, the area I decided to solve for was, well, what if we created B2B technology specifically for marketers that are selling to other businesses? And that's what became account-based marketing or ABM as we know it today. And 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 being too early or too late, <laughs> I mean, how, how, how do you, how do you go about you know, perhaps now, you know, obviously that you've done this a few times. How do you go about timing the market so that you know that you're not too early or you're not too late? Well, you're you're too early if you can't raise money because <laughs> it's really hard to build a business without raising. It can be done, of course, but um, and if you're too late, there's just already, you know, companies, you know, out there doing it, doing what you're doing or or, or have already solved the problem. I think it's really important to talk customers and talk to other industry leaders and getting feedback. And, you know, before I started this most recent business, I did exactly that. I reached out to a lot of uh, customers and CMOs that I respected. I reached out to analysts at Forrester and Gartner, and I reached out to investors. And it was very clear that the market was ready. And uh, it's essentially the original vision of the bandmates is the new, you know, Channel 99 today. 
And obviously, you know, we'll talk about Channel 99 and what you're up to today, but uh, the man base, you know, also quite a successful uh, venture, you know, that, uh, that you built there. I mean, with the man base, you know, I, I believe that, uh, you know, it's been reported that you guys are like in the hundreds of millions, you know, in terms of revenue there. And you were, you know, uh, pushing that for, for quite a while. You know, you were all the way until 2019 there, the CEO. So I guess how did it? Did, did things change, you know, to the point where, you know, you started, you know, perhaps pulling back a little bit more, delegating more, and eventually there became a board and and you felt that the company was on its own? Yeah, you know, I, you know, as an entrepreneur, I have, you know, a ton of passion around innovation and kind of building the next thing. And as you scale and get larger and larger, that part of it gets harder and harder. You become a little bit more as a CEO, a little bit more distant, especially as the, you know, the company has a thousand people, um, you know, a lot of innovation comes through, you know, acquisition. And, um, and so we were at a, a kind of a juncture where our, our CRO that was on board for seven years, Gabe Rogel, was really excited to, to be a CEO of a business. And so we just kind of orchestrated a, a transition where um, he came on board and kind of took over the CEO spot, but he had been at the business for, you know, seven years running, running revenue and sales. And so that was a you know fairly easy transition. And I, you know, I stayed active, you know, six months to a year afterwards, I still remain on the board. Um, but that, you know, during that time period, that's where I really kind of vetted this, this, this new idea. Well, I guess it's a refresh of an old idea, but, um, it was able to do a lot of validation and it's really fun getting back into it um, and, you know, starting from scratch and again, avoiding kind of mistakes and th doing things that, you know, don't necessarily make sense for uh, a small company. But I'm sure that uh, with demand base too, you were able to really see the, um, a bigger organization, no? I mean, as you were saying, you know, all these employees, uh, the company raised uh, over 300 million, uh, potentially going public soon. So I think that in this case, you were able to also see the, you know, what a later stage company looks like that is a little bit bigger, no? So what kind of uh, issues did you also, uh, or lessons did you learn around scale as well? And how do you think about scale when you're still at the early beginnings now? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's one of the hardest things when you're scaling a business, it's around the people because, you know, the, your management team, from zero to 10 million is often very different from 10 to 50 and 50 to 100. And as you build a small company, you know, it becomes somewhat of a family and you're very close uh, to these people. And some people can scale beyond to those next stages and, and some people just don't. Um, and some people just don't like it and want to make a change. And so that's really, really important as far as having the right leadership team in place at each stage. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech Domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way 
that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers, and that's again go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. So then tell us about shifting gears to Channel 99. How did Channel 99 happen? Because, I mean, obviously, you know, demand-based, really successful company, you know, unbelievable what you had, you know, being able to accomplish with bringing something from nothing all the way to, to that type of level. So how was that transition like? Um, you know, it's, it was a little bit funky with, uh, you know, during the pandemic. Right. Um, you know, because starting a new business, when you're innovating, you want to be at the whiteboard with people and that we didn't really have that opportunity. Um, but, you know, the idea itself, you know, it, I guess it had been germinating for quite some time. And so it was easy for me to kind of vet. Um, and the the idea behind the company is it's all around B2B marketing again, but it's it is really a platform for understanding you know, the quality and dollar efficiency of all your different marketing vendors and providers. So whether it's demand base or Sixth Sense or LinkedIn or Google or whatever it is that you're spending money on, it provides really a source of truth on what is really working and what is not. And, you know, for for the B2B marketer out there, there's it's really hard because most companies are only targeting two or 3% of the companies out there. And there's 2000 marketing solutions, but there's probably only a dozen that really matter, but it's a different dozen for each company. So we're, we're pro providing a lot more transparency around that, especially in the world of, of advertising because so much money gets spent and there's so much inefficiency. And uh, so I think we can bring a lot of kind of truth behind what's working, what's not. So channel 99. Tell us about Channel 99. What is the business model? How are you guys making money with Channel 99? It's a pretty simple uh, model. It's a very low base subscription of 15000 a year. And then we have um, a way to kind of uncover the effectiveness of advertising. So all the activity that's happening off your website um, that we can start monitoring. So there's a pay-as-you-go model uh, for that piece of the technology. And then you were saying that for Channel 99, there was a ton of calls, a ton of, uh, you know, prospective uh, customers that you were speaking with. At what point do you realize that you had hit product market fit? What did that look like? You know, um, it, it was pretty clear that, you know, as market turns down a little bit, marketing investment always gets constrained, right? And we play right into that because we really show people, you know, where they can reduce money and not impact their pipeline or revenue. Um, and so it kind of, our solution works in good times and bad, but especially in tough, tougher times where people are pulling back, we, we give a lot of visibility into where those decisions should be made. So we do like vendor performance ranking. We also have a level of benchmark data. So you know how well you're doing versus companies like yours. Now, for this company, you guys have also raised money from different investors. And, uh, you know, at this point, you've been around the block a few times. 
what were you looking for, you know, in investors when, when you decided to uh, pick up the phone and call them and, and how easy it was to raise money this time around? Yeah. Well, yeah, I've been around the block a hundred times, I think, <laughs> down this Sandhill Road. Um, uh, it was relatively easy because it is actually a good time to be starting a company. Um, there's, you know, a lot of investors out there that, you know, invested in middle stage or later stage companies. And with valuations kind of upside down, um, a lot of them have shifted to earlier stage investing. So there's actually a lot of dollars out there for doing seed and series A. Um, my, my round was led by Jackson Square Ventures, um, who also invested in demand base. And, um, you know, the partner there I've known for a long time and kind of what I look for an investor. It's, it's not just the dollars it's somebody that can really help you build the business and uh you know bob spinner who's there has been just a tremendous asset at demand base and he's also a great asset to me here at channel 99 and we've had additional investors including uh norwest ventures ridge ventures uh, bloomberg beta and then um you know a handful of indiv individuals as well I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening now that are wondering, you know, that are also like perhaps looking at raising money or or that are thinking about the dynamics with their investors. When you say those investors that help you in building the business, what does that look like? What is what is that added value that they bring to the table? Because most investors, they talk about value, but almost none of them, you know, really bring it to the table unless, you know, you're a seasoned entrepreneur like you and you're able to really filter through the noise and understand what each one of them are able to bring, it's tough. So what does helping you in building the business look like? Yeah, I, love, I, I like to work with investors that have operating experience, that have either been a CEO or run sales or marketing or product, because I just think they can bring so much to a small company. And, you know, I'm of the mindset, I, I love the feedback and interaction, so I definitely embrace it. Um, so I, I try and leverage our investors as much as possible. I, you know, have them help interview candidates, uh, you know, just bounce some ideas off. Because uh, as you probably know from your interviews, you know, the, the CEO gig is a, can be a, lon a lonely place at times. And so it's really good to have those kind of sounding boards, if you will. Now, when it comes to vision, you know, obviously the investors and the employees, you know, they're, you're enrolling them all in, into what's possible and the future that you're living into, no? So when it comes to the future, imagine you were, you basically had the opportunity of going to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Channel 99 is fully realized. What does that world look like? You know, I kind of have this vision of, you know, we're, of being kind of the Adobe for B2B. Right. In, in the consumer world, you know, everybody has Adobe Analytics and their platforms for measurement. And in the world of B2B, it doesn't exist. And so I think we can fill that role. And I also think there's a role, um, you know, where double verify within the advertising or ad tech world. They, you know, they do a wonderful job with verification and tracking human versus non-human and brand safety. That's also needed in B2B, but it's it's not the same measurements. And so I think we can also solve for that as well. So when you look at those two businesses, if we can do the same in B2B, that's a really nice, large, attractive business to be in. 
And as we were talking about people with investors and, and also with employees, part of that as well, you know, there's one thing that, uh, that needs to resonate, and that is culture, right? So how do you go about building culture? Well, yeah, that is, you know, job number one. I, I'm super passionate about that. And um, when we were building demand base, when we were about 20, 25 people, I kind of like set out this vision that we want to be a best places to work uh, business and we want to have great talent, great culture. And it's, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. You really have to invest in it. And um you know, it's not about the free snacks, <laughs> like a lot of people think. It's about being transparent with employees. It's about engaging them in the business. Um, and so we invested heavily in like weekly town halls, um, kind of share, sharing what's working, what's not working. Um, we invested a lot in philanthropic events and activities, which was probably the single most team building thing that we've ever done. Um, and people really, really value that. And so in investing in all these different things, we end up uh, you know, becoming the best places to work in San Francisco for eight years in a row. And within Glassdoor, we were number 10 in the country out of 500,000 small businesses. Um, and so it's not, uh, you know, it's not just having people fill out a survey. It's, you really have to, to work at it. So, for example, now, now when you're building Channel 99 and, and let's say you're meeting with people and you're looking to bring in people on board, what are, what are some of those things that you're looking, you know, when you're like engaging, when you're having, because it's, it's really tough, you know, in like in a meeting or, or a few meetings, really be able uh, to know, you know, how that individual is going to be able to grow with the business. So what are some of the things that you look for? You know, I, I think having a remote business is hard it's really hard and so i'm hoping that we have uh you know a hybrid model will start to evolve it, not not to say that people are going to have to all come into the office in some big headquarters but i think we'll end up having you know small offices in in different places just so people can collaborate um and people can have an impact and see their impact on the business it's hard to do that over zoom or slack and um so I think that'll be important as far as presence and collaboration. But I think some of the other elements that we learned at Demandbase is just, you know, being very transparent and communicating. And uh, and when the opportunity presents itself, getting people together to do something, you know, for the greater community is important. And sometimes when you can find a way to use your technology to make a difference in things outside of B2B marketing, it's pretty exciting for people. Because they, they see, you know, yes, we sell software to other businesses, but if you can sell or give away your software to, you know, impact, you know, an organization in a meaningful way, um, that can have a long-lasting, uh, you know, value culture-wise. So let's talk about the impact there. Let's, let's double click on that. Imagine I'm able to bring you into a time machine back in time, and I bring you back to perhaps, you know, that moment that you were at GE you know, wondering with your colleagues there, you know, what to do next, right? And, and perhaps to bring a, a company of your own to market. If you were able to sit down with that younger Chris and be able to give that younger Chris one piece of advice before launching a business, what would, what would, what would you tell your younger self and why, given what you know now? Hmm. Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, 
I think we probably always underestimated the people factor and, um, you know, not only hiring great people, but if, if somebody's not the right fit, making those decisions earlier, because that can be such a drain on a company. And it's not to say that somebody's a bad performer. It could be that somebody's just the company's outgrown them or they're not in the right position. And that's partly the company's fault, right? It's not just the employees. So I think making those decisions sooner uh, really benefits the business and, and really all employees. So for the people that are listening, Chris, that are uh, wondering what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? You can do so on LinkedIn. Um, you can certainly you know, send me an email at chris at channel99.com. And um, that's probably the best way. And certainly go to our website. There's a you know, free solution there if you want to get started. And uh, you know, we're, we'll be introducing our platform next month. Amazing. Well, hey, Chris, well, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you very much. It was, I enjoyed it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.